0: Hello, I am Dr Richard Booker, I am a haematologist in the West Midlands England, and this is Don't Just Read the Guidelines. Don't Just Read the Guidelines is a podcast that explores ideas and research at the cutting edge of medicine, especially anything to do with blood. I aim to provide a platform to incredible people you probably haven't heard from before, to share their work, ideas and most importantly, their unfounded opinions. We will take you beyond the guidelines, into the evidence behind them and most interestingly, into the sticky world of opinion and conjecture. If you enjoy this episode, subscribe to this podcast on your preferred platform and don't forget to leave a review. If you have something to share or would like to come on the podcast, find me on Twitter at Richard Booker. On this week's podcast, I'm talking to Tom Bull, who is a haematology registrar and very nearly a consultant in Suffolk. Tom runs Hemebase, which is, as I'm sure many of you are aware, an amazing website dedicated to helping people pass the FRC path, part one and part two exams. Tom has spent painstaking hours summarising guidelines and developing content out of the goodness of his heart to help people with their um, career development I'm also joined by Alex Language, who is another haematology registrar, and again almost a consultant up in the north of England. In 2017, Alex set up Buku Haematology, which has gone on to become Buku Medicine. This is a app that aims to provide answers and education about the most common questions posed to medical medical specialty doctors, with the intention of freeing up time for clinicians, improving workload, and improving patient care. The app has now had over 20,000 downloads internationally. And whilst it just started with haematology, they now have renal, endocrinology, hepatology, rheumatology, with more specialties coming online in future. These are two really interesting people at the start of their consultant careers, and I'm sure you're going to really enjoy hearing from them. Welcome both. Hello. You. So Alex, I'm going to start with you. My surname is Booker, B-U-K-A, and Buku Haematology is scarily close to that. Where, where's, this, where's this word come from?
1: Uh, well, it, it was. I'd, I heard about you through the grapevine. Uh, <laughs> and I wanted to do this as an homage um, to all of your uh, achievements. Um, so I, when when I set it up. Uh, about four or five years ago, and um, I've set it up with Prof. Steve O'Brien, who's a CML expert in Newcastle. Um, but he's got an interest in tech, um, so he's quite nerdy like me. Um, but once a year, pre-pandemic, he would go out to Malawi. Um, and there was a lab in Blantyre that he would sort of contribute to um, while he was there. And also through the year, there's a project um, it's called Empathy. Um, which is just sort of done within Newcastle. And basically, sample uh, images can be sent from Malawi to Newcastle, and then an opinion can be given on morphology. Um, So if there are any challenging diagnoses, because they do have uh, some uh, clinical officers working as a sort of haematologist role, but their experience is relatively limited. So this is just to support that, basically. Um, But in Malawi, they speak Chewa, and uh, Buku means book or reference. Um, Oh, yeah, I've come up with some awful names like uh, hemaptology, uh, hematology app, Um <laughs> but, like, but luckily we, we were saved by Buku Haematology. Um, and... and then about a year ago, we became Buku Medicine um, since we've added the other specialties uh, in. Um, and we've got a few more coming in the next month or so, which is really exciting.
0: So just tell me what Buku, Buku Medicine is for, just yeah, very sure. simply.
1: So it is for anybody who'd be thinking about referring to a haematologist and i'll I'll talk about the other specialties in a minute but the idea is that a lot of the time haematology can seem quite intimidating and by providing a bit of basic information reassuring people that a slightly raised neutrophil count doesn't mean someone's got leukemia if you can do that just with a really easy to access free resource and that can divert a lot of the calls that would come our way and also hopefully reduce the burden on both and improve patient care uh, while doing a bit of education at the same time as well. We tried to keep it really concise and clinically relevant and, um, and very sort of real world because we know hematology can seem quite intimidating. Um, so that's what it's for really. And selfishly it was just to try and stop people calling me through the night and um, trying to ask, ask me about anti-10A levels. I just, I've, I've done my fill of anti-10A levels now, um, but actually there, there are elements of our job that don't need, specialist input they just need the right information to be given um, and that's what the app's for it doesn't replace um a specialist's experience and so this isn't there to answer all questions that we get asked this is just Mm -hmm. about answering those ones that don't really need to come through to us or trying to give the information so that if someone is referred they're referred, for example, if they've got their thrombocytosis, they've already had their JAK2 calor and MPL done. So that at the first clinic appointment, you can say, OK, you've got a JAK2 positive, essential thrombocytemia, here's your treatment. And um, so it's just trying to expedite some of those elements as well. Um, and then we've also added in the other specialties. So we've got renal, endocrine hepatology and rheumatology and these are all specialties that also have a lot of investigations in them uh, and again it's one of those things where people just feel a bit intimidated by those tests so it's just trying to take some of that anxiety away improve the confidence of the user and just um, manage patient sort of workflow and referrals more effectively
0: so i guess you make the haematology content who does the renal and rheumatology etc
1: Yeah, so we've got some really good colleagues. So we've got other registrars. Most of them are from our region, but we've got a few who've either been recommended or sort of sought out on Twitter as other sort of keen educators. Um, And then we have a consultant for each specialty as well. At least one consultant. We have two for most. Um, And these are all people doing it in their own time, uh, which is obviously incredibly kind. Um, and, And yeah, so they've contributed to make it what it is.
0: So how many people are using the app then?
1: Uh, So we have got uh, 21,500. So, yeah, so it's good. It's been really good. So um, our rate of uptake has been increasing, um, as you'd sort of hope, because we spread mainly by word of mouth. And we've not really had any money uh, at all for most of it. Um, We have just got some funding from the Academic Health Sciences Network uh, for a couple of logistical things, so sort of improving the quality of our branding um, and also getting some uh, advertising in uh, a couple of journal websites i think we're going to aim for the bmj website um so yeah um so hopefully that'll help to expand our users uh, a bit further
0: what's the academic health sciences network
1: so uh, no you're testing me so they are basically um an arms length nhs body they are spread out throughout the country i don't know how many there are but it's sort of 10 to 15 i think and the idea is that they can provide um, innovation support um, for either those working within the nhs or outside the nhs to come into the healthcare sector um, and improve their sort of uh, their output basically
0: okay thanks and tom on the theme of massively open free amazing information hemebase is essentially a modern work of art <laughs> 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 when did it start how did Originally you come up with
2: the idea like jokes and everything, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what was
0: the motivation
2: uh... I came across the idea of FOMED as a as a phrase when I was in Australia for a year um, doing up being an RMO in an emergency department and one of the consultants there was involved in um, contributing to Life in the Fast Lane which is the first FOMED website I'd come across I don't know if you've seen it but it's one of those sort of quick reference sites for, for acute medicine and emergency medicine presentations so it's big on ECGs, <laughs> arterial blood gases, that kind of Quick reference stuff, metabolic derangements, um, and I became quite dependent on that all the way through CMT as a kind of to hand ready access point. You and me
0: both. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. Um, and then uh, doing my hematology exams, you kind of there wasn't a lot around to to guide what you're meant to be doing. So apart from asking other people who'd sat it recently. It was tricky to get a feel of just how much they need to know and when you and when you start haematology it just you know it's just a tide of information you've never encountered before and knowing what's really what's worth kind of get, getting in your brain and isn't um and there's some other so there's the i, I haematology website which has uh far preceded me um i don't know the two people who set it up the jenny and james on the website I don't know what they do now they must be consultants um, and i found that really helpful they've got a great bit on immunophenotyping and, and sort of yeah. common cd markers but I think that's a past project and it's probably been some time since they looked at it as far as I can tell I apologize if that's not the case but um I think there was there was new information to be added so um all my notes were done electronically revising for the part two exam so I sat at the end of it had all these notes just sitting on my hard drive and I thought I'll make something useful of this I, I didn't know where to find it so maybe if I put it out there it'll help other people find it um and then I got a bit obsessed with the just kind of uh I like a task and just you know work my way through so I dumped it all on there but I've gradually just enjoyed trying to tidy it up hyperlink it find all those typos people are great at, at emailing me and, and spotting any any real clangers that are, that are hiding in there so um yeah
0: that project absolutely has to be some kind of obsession, doesn't it? So um, a little plug for my website, which is pathquestionbank.com. I started last year and wrote about 900 questions plus sort of extensive answers in like under 12 months. And my wife it drove my wife crazy. Yeah, I have no idea. I was just const- con- constantly on the laptop. But I mean, I think you guys have, you know, you've guys done similar amounts of work in similar amounts of time. Um, and yeah, if you're not careful, those obsessions can destroy your family, can't they?
2: yeah have, yeah it's um it kind of has to for a bit it was my it was my it sort of became my hobby so it yeah kind of, yeah it replaced, it replaced my reading time or my video game time or whatever and i've got a <laughs> balance now but you're right you have to kind of you've got to res- respect that it's it's something you're doing for yourself so you're using some of your own time for it yeah and i've got small kids and, and things and so you can't kind of you can't become an additional thing that you're doing on top of everything else
0: how, how much work do you put into it on a, di- a sort of weekly basis now
2: uh now um not not too much sort of i try and keep an eye out for anything that's changed and i'll if if there's a new guideline or somebody points out something that's uh come out i'll spend an hour or two trying to make sure it's it's tidied up i'm trying to resist the urge adding too much new information to it. the main problem i've got with the website now is the exam is starting to fade thankfully for my mind and so trying to keep track of of how much did I need to know for the part two exam? I don't want to just keep flinging new information every time I hear new information, just piling it in. Yeah. Um, because then it, then it becomes, the target audience will change and it won't actually be for people preparing for the exams. Yeah. But at the same time, keep it up to date and relevant. So that's, that's what I found tricky about it. It
0: does force you to, to read the new guidelines, doesn't it?
2: Oh yeah, and it's great for myself for a CPD point of view. Make sure I actually, you know, once I did the exam quite early, making sure you actually continue to read these things when they come out instead of just thinking exams yeah. out the way, yeah. uh, you know, bearing in mind you've got, yeah, future ahead of you. Yeah, mind.
0: absolutely. And Alex, how much, how much are you putting at the moment? I mean, uh, clearly the websites, I, I, I'm guessing you do more uh, sort of management and marketing and things rather than content delivery now?
1: Yeah. So, um, the content writing was at the start and yeah, you're right. That was, that was a lot of work. Um, I probably did the majority of the writing of the clinical content for Heme. Um, and for the last sort of two or three years, I've been doing all the Twitter content as well, which is quite, it takes yeah. so much longer than you think yeah. to write a tweet, doesn't it? Yeah, And, and you know, because you're trying to put in the right amount of information uh, and then also work around your character limits so yeah. um, that that's a lot more work than i expected it to be but um i've got a couple of great regs now helping to do that um our clinical content's relatively stable but we can add new things if we need to or make any amendments and we've got a governance mechanism so we keep checking the content every six months but luckily because it's quite general not much changes okay. um but yeah you're right so more of it now is just thinking about the next steps. Um, and trying to keep on top of all of
2: those bits okay how much can do we, you have
0: uh, on the oh go on sorry Tom. Can, I, can i
2: interrupt you leading this search and just ask alex do, do you have a similar problem about now now you've completed your content um the temptation to add in more things versus actually what the gps want and how can they get to it quickly um yeah
1: exactly it's um it's just you have to keep asking yourself the question of what's relevant, um, and what be, people the
2: useful
1: stuff. what okay. people want. Um, because ultimately, as you say, you know, you've got to keep an eye on your own time. Make sure you're not ploughing in too much, um, and also you want to make sure the content that's on there is good. I think the reason people like us is because our content is concise and it's what they need to know. Um, so, fortunately, you know, from your own experiences of having the on-call phone, you know the questions that you get, the top ten questions, you can rattle off your answers pretty quickly, and and it's all of those things. You know, we'll be keeping an eye on things with you know doax and reversal so and exonet and what's going to come of that in terms of the, the real life clinical use of it but again the, particularly with that it's a very specific circumstance at the moment isn't it so um again we're not going to rush into writing uh swathes about that um we'll just wait till the sort of um, the dust has settled a bit and then we can say something useful about it so
0: um how much do you put in on the technical aspects? I mean, I know Tom, you do your, your whole website yourself, don't you?
2: Yeah, I use, I use Squarespace though. Um, okay. Sorry, maybe I shouldn't mention the brand. But <laughs> no, no, go <laughs> on. Um, I, uh, it just makes it. it's just. Uh, it's all just drag and drop, basically. There's no real technical expertise. Um, okay. I do the theme style website as well, and that's on a, a WordPress. And the, uh, I mean, it's you just lose hours clicking, expanding boxes and ch- changing font sizes and things. So, no, know, mine's, mine's very straightforward to, to manage technically.
0: And Alex, do you have a, an app developer or have you got involved in that as well? No. So
1: luckily we've just got, we've kind of cheated. So we've got, uh, there's a company that we use, we pay them an annual fee and basically it provides the scaffold for the app. So we're sort of a halfway house between a web app and a native app. Um, so the content is still pulled from the internet when you open the modules um, but the structure is there and loaded onto the phone so it knows that there's material and then it it pulls it which is the downside because if you've got bad internet uh, signal which is not uncommon in hospitals because they seem to be made entirely of lead um, so all 4g disappears as soon as you've taken like three steps in the door Um, you can't always get the content but the problem is to to build their own proper one would cost a lot. And, and we've not got that money um, one day maybe, um, and that, that is gonna be our aim, but uh, at the moment, no. So it's uh, it's dead easy. It's maybe uh, halfway between WordPress and Squarespace because um, our website Squarespace. And as Tom says, it's dead easy and and then the wordpress i've used for the trust that i'm working at in informatics Um, and yeah you, you know you you change the font or you think you've changed the font but you really haven't changed the font um and you only learn that after you've published a website and then it just looks uh absolutely awful
0: yeah, his, mine's WordPress, and um, I obviously have a web developer that does it, but he obviously he does a lot of coding behind the scenes. So I, I can't really change anything at all, which is really frustrating because I've used WordPress before and had full control. And, uh, yeah, I have to ask Stu to do it all now. So uh, I, feel like a, um, I feel like a real technophobe, but um, it's better that someone does it properly, I think, especially when you're asking people for money. <laughs> money. Yeah, good. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, wh- I mean, where do you both want to take this? Tommy, you're happy with Heembase as it is or you've got any other projects on the go or things you think you might want to do?
2: Yeah, well, I'm heading into a consultant job and so I, you know, I don't really know what to expect about how much time I'll have for it. So I want, definitely want to continue to pursue it as a kind of mm. a, a hobby. But in terms of expanding, I think I have to be, probably have to see how the next couple of years settling mm. in goes. The main thing I like from it at the minute is I've got a couple of people who contribute stuff. People will email me and to offer up things to add in and mm-hmm. um, that's been great for getting a few different perspectives so I think I'll probably sort of continue to try and encourage other people's feedback particularly I want to kind of, I want to expand the bit on the how to prepare for the exam because that's now too that's now getting two years old and you know it's all digital now for example it keeps changing so um, anyone who knows anyone who set the exam recently who'd be willing to spend five minutes send me an email of, of how they went about preparing for it and that'd be fantastic. i
1: I, I did it in april (laughs) so yeah i can
2: just uh, yeah what your strategy was just so that people have a i've got a couple of examples of what people have done but the more examples the more people i can think that would work for me yeah i could really do that before i started you know
1: i think the most important thing is to make sure that none of your neighbors are having building work done on the day (laughs) of your uh zoom Viber. um so that, there needs to be some kind of way of making an embargo because I had to go, and this was still during lockdown. So this was probably semi semi against the rules, but I had to go to my mate's house and use their their Zoom. So they just sort of saw me crawling out, covered in sweat after the exam. Uh, so they were the first ones to see me when it was all done. Uh, so lucky them.
0: Do you think that all these exams will stay online? It seems to make it seems to make sense.
1: I mean, the morphology. I don't know, I think it's tough because it's it's the opportunity for failure. What's more likely to fail? The computer that's providing you the digital morphology or the microscope uh, and the slides. And unfortunately my microscope did fail uh, as, I, that, as I started my long cases. Um, so that was absolutely horrible, um, but, but it got it working. There was a spare one there, um, but I don't know, I guess it's sort of the staffing and costs. They'll think about what's cheaper. And inevitably i guess you know your online uh methods of delivering exams and so on will probably just keep getting more expensive as they become the norm so yeah. i don't know actually whether it is better to just do it face to face yeah what do you
2: think tom I, I suppose for our generation we've um that's how we've always done an exam so it's a bit of reassurance in knowing that okay this is an exam you know i turn up i sit at the desk i'm in exam you know it's all that kind of years and years and years of just practicing that mm-hmm. format and just feeling like you're in the moment for it and that's not going to be true for you know another 10 years people might be much more comfortable and used and practice to to doing it remotely so maybe maybe their preferences might you know examinees preferences might shift as well
0: yeah i mean there's a huge trust element as well isn't there i mean i think with professional exams when you've got professional registration it's just not worth cheating but you could i mean you have an online invigilator but you can still get to the toilet and look at your notes i mean <clears throat> not that not that i did <laughs> but part one but you could and I, I you know it's it is a real concern um but i think i mean to cheat whilst writing four essays and you obviously couldn't write you couldn't cheat with a morphology exam really could you either so um yeah i don't know we'll see I guess maybe the that they've, they've got ivy particularly for
1: you know, for specialist exams, like you can you can top yourself up on one or two questions in the toilet, but ultimately you yeah. can't learn the entire management of Waldenstrom's uh, yeah. when you're going for a pee. So, um,
0: <laughs> exactly. Um Tom, so you're going on to a clinical consultant post, is that right, 100%? Yeah, yeah okay. uh, DJI, so. Okay, perfect. Yeah. And Alex, you're finishing after Christmas as well? Think yeah,
1: that's right. yeah, that's right, yeah. So this is my last block. Um, on What's the, plan? the training program, so um, yeah, I'm
0: uh, not quite sure what I'm going to do
1: next. I'm going to see if I can try and have a um, one day a week doing informatics or uh, similar. So um, for those that aren't aware, of informatics is basically just like doctors who nerd on computers. Um, so trying to improve the systems that we use. I've been a fellow, uh, an informatics fellow. I, get, I, I mean, I gave myself that title because um, it because it, <laughs> it makes me sound important. Um, But working a couple of days a week at Northumbria Trust, which is a local one to us, and they've been excellent. It's been such a good experience. But um, I'm really passionate about that. Um, And it's very rewarding trying to um, make changes with computer systems and just try and improve that interaction. So um, I'd love to try and do that a day a week. Um, so
0: yeah, I can imagine there's a lot of frustrations trying to improve NHS computer systems.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And everywhere does it differently. So um, you'll have some trusts where there is a single system that does everything and the benefit of that is usually for the end user it's actually much more straightforward Mm -hmm. Um, but you'll also have other trusts that have multiple systems and use a sort of best in breed approach and the upside of that is you're not then completely beholden to whoever owns the system because if you want to make changes there's no motivation for that big single company to do so um whereas if you can talk about the competition if you've got a best in breed model that helps but it does ultimately often make it a bit harder for the end users. So, um, yeah. So there's a lot of angry people. I think part of my role as the informatics fellow is to be a therapist. Uh, you just get some people emailing and they just want to talk about their printer. And you're okay. like, I, I can't help you. Printers hate people. And there's nothing I think we can ever do about that. And um, is so very you true. To, you've just got to be an E. Yeah.
0: Um just to round off the first half, I've been dying to ask Alex about NHS entrepreneurs, which is a scheme you've been involved in. Tell me yeah. a bit more about that and what you've got out of that.
1: Yeah, no. So um, while um, I was working on the, the ward, um, one of my research shows is a guy called Lewis Potter and he created um, Geeky Medics, um, ah. which is a medical student um, learning resource. Um, and uh, it's fantastic. Um, and he, got involved with the clinical entrepreneur program i think maybe two or three years ago and he just advised me to get in touch with tony young who's the guy, the guy who leads he's a urologist but he's a director for innovation at nhs england uh excuse me if i've got his title wrong but i think that's right um but he leads the program um and the idea is you apply and, and if you're successful then you can attend their events and um, and it's education about how to basically bring an innovation into the NHS Um, and they've got some amazing stats about um, sort of money saved for the NHS um, the amount of time saved uh, jobs generated and so on Um, so it's basically just a really great way of meeting other like-minded people and also being introduced to people who can help you realise whatever your uh, end goal is.
0: does that have like an open application system or
1: yeah so yeah so it's open and it's not just docs as well so it's um pharmacists and nurses whoever really that's within the um healthcare system uh you'll have to check their website i can't remember when the application's open but um yeah
0: awesome well that was um that was great i it was exactly what i wanted to talk about you both brought um excellent um well tom a, a website and, and alex an app into the world and and the world is richer for it and um there's plenty of very very grateful clinicians out there for you both tom definitely i know that Hay base has got a, an incredible following um people are raving about it in every in every uh corner of hematological consult in the country. So really well done. Um, Alex, I, I don't have as many GP friends, but um the ones I do, I want to ensure that I tell them about it because it looks awesome. Um, so uh, you know, congratulations from me to both of you. They're, they're, they're brilliant. Um, so now that I've got two almost consultants um snared um for 20 minutes or so, I the thing that excites me about this podcast is to talk about, you know, what's what's going to happen down the line in hematology or medicine in general um and and where where we're gonna go. So Tom, just before we came on, or just before I pressed record, you were talking about um, you know, the the challenges for medicine going forward. And I think an important question is the role of doctors. Um I mean you posed the question do we really need doctors or in the future will we need doctors or or what will our role
2: be? I mean what, what are your thoughts on that? Um so without rambling too much is it the conversation has come up in a few different angles with friends recently. Um and it's around this idea of what we need from doctors. And um, I've just sat an interview where they say, what makes a good doctor? And you reel off about sort of 10 characteristics, which all be full-time jobs in their own right. And how can anybody be an expert at all of those things? Mm. Audit, research, leadership, management, clinical expertise. Um, and is that still achievable? The medical knowledge expanding at the rate it is. No one person can really hold all of that anymore. And you see it in clinical practice in the um, so among junior doctors, a common complaint is they don't do procedures anymore. There's a, there's a specialist technician or nurse practitioner for chest drains or for abdominal paracentesis or um, there's a phlebotomist for the blood tests. There's a nurse specialist for the conversations around a new diagnosis. There's a physician's associate who may well do the clerking and initial medical review and then attend the ward round. Where does the doctor fit into that and what's their role left? Um, And uh, lots of people are trying to answer that. And there's the future doctor report that came out last year that talks a bit about how doctors may need to maintain a more of a generalist position and just dip into expertise so that we don't end up with too many subspecialists and they'll be left with the the general skills. Uh, So bringing all of that together, um, what's a doctor? If If a consultant is going to be a sort of senior experienced supervisor within a department does that need to be somebody with a medical degree could that be in 10 years time the nurse specialist who has 10 years of hematology experience or the physician associate who actually through a long time in one department has built up the leadership and the management skills necessary to run a department Mm. is the medical degree still the thing that makes you the right person to be to be running to be running the service
0: I think the medical degree was always the gateway to being able to do that, wasn't it? But you're completely right. They're they're, they're very disparate skills. At no point in our training, although, you know, we're supposed to have leadership management expertise and training. Do you really get that? Um, You might manage a rotor or something, but really man managing people isn't isn't something that we we tend to do as registrars, I don't think. And the conversations I've had with people is that I think a lot of doctors seem very precious about that role of a doctor and feel uneasy about some of these things being done by a nurse specialist or a physician associate i mean to be honest the more help the better um and some of my a&p colleagues are amazing um and in fact you know when you you know you guys know yourself when you're answering phone calls that the probably the best histories and the best things come from the a&ps because often they're focused on something they're very good at and they're happy to do and they do well and what do you think alex um
1: I think I'm probably completely underqualified to answer this question. Um
0: which is exactly the point of this podcast.
1: True, not true. <laughs> um I don't know, I think it's it, things are changing in the in that because of workload, um, poor workforce planning, um, there will be shortages for many years to come mm. uh in, in in everything, um, which also brings its own problems because it's not just the docs that we're short of, it's short of nurses and um, and and more of course um so i think the challenge is it's sort of being it's mapping to our current workforce demands but also making sure that we're thinking about the next steps as well i think we do have a unique position in that we uh have the medical context of our work um, but also with our work you do uh, an important part of that is taking responsibility and decision making um, and I'm not showing that other clinicians um, don't, but that that's part of our also. So that does give us some useful skills that we can take into leadership uh, and management roles. But by no means does that guarantee that we'll always be good, um, nor that people who aren't docs won't be good at it either. So um, I think there's some very specific circumstances where we can be replaced. And, and I'm thinking particularly... Uh, This is something I feel a bit more confident with, so artificial intelligence um, in certain diagnostics, um, but uh, otherwise I think I'm going to sit a bit on the fence and say that it's a very difficult issue.
2: Oh yeah, I'm not providing an answer, I just think these are interesting (laughs)
0: questions. The the intro to this podcast talks about unfounded opinions, which is what I'm especially keen on. (laughs)
2: Because the other sort of challenging question to us as doctors, I suppose, is to what extent now is the medical degree really a gatekeeping tool to these positions? Because if you wrap it into the, what is a doctor and what do we need from them? You know, medical degree is fantastic. You know, but I loved it, but to what extent is that still, is that now being used as a way to kind of preserve a certain structure of medicine so that everyone understands what it is and everybody knows each other's roles, which is obviously important for running a service, but, Mm. um, if you extend that too far, you know, maybe you're turning a blind eye to opportunities because it would be too disrupt, you know, too much disruption to embrace an alternative format.
0: Yeah. I think, I think that, yeah, I think the medical degree is, is one thing and maybe it's the postgraduate training. I think, you know, we get stretched in a way that perhaps the nurses don't and it takes the nurses a long time to accumulate knowledge because they they can sit in one place in, in their comfort zone Not that not that every nurse does that, but often you'll see ward nurses that have been on the in the same job for the first two years of their training, with you know, and they've got into their comfort zone within six months. And I always want to see them pushed, and I always want to tell you know, tell the nurses, you know, get yourself off this ward and get yourself doing something else, so that you develop those skills. Perhaps it's that, perhaps it's just we're constantly being pushed out of our comfort zone, partially because of the need for service delivery, um, but also because there's been that planning and planning of the, the of us of our. Uh, training to try and give us that sort of general broad-based knowledge. Um, I, I mean, I think going forwards, clearly there are some clinical roles in haematology, you know, things like MGUS clinics and and the, the things that are fairly indolent that can be done can be done by a nurse specialist. But then I always think, well, if this if – this, you, you, you're giving a nurse specialist, so this is a nurse with a, a heck of a lot of experience who's a specialist, 15 MGUS patients who are low risk. That can be done by AI, surely. Alex, what do you think? M- M- go spy mm-hmm. AI, never see a doctor?
1: So uh, I think you you could. I mean, I guess the question's always like, what's the worst case scenario? So how could it go wrong? Um, so you need whatever system you're using to be able to pick up the features, You know, pick up our CRAB criteria
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: or your other MDEs. Um, but there's also that element where you need to be able to make sure that you... You have that interaction with the patient, so that's where the you still need the doctor. And there's a really good book by Eric Topol, um, and he's a I think he's a cardiologist in America, but he he's a real um, powerful force in artificial intelligence. And he's got a book called Deep Medicine in it. It's amazing, and um, I would recommend it even to non um, AI sort of passionate people. Mm. Um, and I and caveat, I'm not either. I've just got a real interest in it. Um, but he, he talks about in that book how the artificial intelligence should make our jobs easier um, and should allow us to be more human. Um, so the idea is that we can use uh, AI systems to triage patients who are low-risk MGUSs, for example, that brings in those patients who have a higher probability yeah. of developing end organ damage. And then you can use your clinical interaction, the rapport that you build with them, to identify that they have got a niggly pain in their right femur that they've not wanted to tell anyone else about um so it, it's trying to merge those two things but yeah definitely i think ai can be incredibly useful in that and um, but that's where it's still important to have that face-to-face interaction or uh, telephone to telephone interaction as we're having a yeah. lot of, them there, um, which isn't quite the same but um uh, just to try and elicit some of that and use that human human nature to try and help pull out those features
2: and then that's a great example for it about the human side of it, isn't it? Because it's one of those diagnoses people get without often without anybody intending to make, without the patient expecting to receive, um, and has all these sort of pre cancer connotations to it, but also being told they're not really going to be seen regularly by anyone about it. There's a lot of anxiety and medicalization that, that's around it. There's a great talk at BSH from a, from a consultant about CLL, asymptomatic CLL patients um, that he looks after in Wales. that. Um, I don't remember the title of the talk now, but um, it's brilliant talking about the kind of harm we cause and throwing these diagnoses around and then sort of saying, well, you're low risk, so I don't need to see you. So go, you know, I'll see you in a year. But what does that mean to the patient and where are they left? And, mm. Yeah,
0: And I mean, medicine's classically slow to change. Do you think this is going to come in soon? Do you think we're going to have AI systems to deal with this sort of thing? Because, I, I mean, it takes, it just, I know it's nice to be able to, see your mgus patients but it takes a lot of it takes a lot of resource you know we're 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 deploying at least probably two pas worth of clinician a a week to look after our mgus patients and and sure maybe a you know a small proportion of those are high risk and maybe changing i've seen one today um and that requires some some input but the vast majority you know we're checking the bloods i'm convinced the patient can do that themselves Well, taking their own blood maybe not take their own blood but i'm sure i i'm, I'm convinced that if you gave them the resource i may maybe through an app with a questionnaire they get their bloods done um it picks up any worrisome symptoms they have a look at their bloods nothing's changed fine i'm okay feedback to the doctor yeah no worries do you think that would work for 80 percent of patients 90 percent of patients or do you think you need someone to trawl through the the results every week
1: i mean i think we're probably reassured with em Gus, because we know it's I'm going to say this, it, it's just MGUS the majority of the time for, you know, 99% of your patients per year, nothing will happen.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, whereas for your patient, who's actually there with the app, uh, having a look at their blood results, you know, they're seeing their power protein going from 7.4 to 7.9.
0: Yeah.
1: That's a big increase. Um, and they're going to be thinking, my God, but wait, what if this is me missing my own cancer? Um, so I, can, I completely get what, where you're coming from and um, empowering patients is is critical to us being sustainable in terms of our work. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's that challenging balance of uh, you need to know your patient to know whether they could probably tolerate that.
2: Yeah. I'd yeah. like to be able to see us get more flexible and in, and in more real time over how patients are seen and where. So with all the teleclinics we move to, you've got these different groups of patients, patients who want to be seen face-to-face, but you feel can be safely managed on a telephone, patients who want to be managed on the telephone, but you're worried about and you want to see face-to-face, and then the patients where you both agree you need to come face-to-face and the patients you both agree can be on the telephone. And often often you don't find each of those groups out until you have one appointment, and then you need to rebook for the one that you do need, and trying to find a way that we can make the whole outpatient system more flexible to get people in the right place the first time. Mm-hmm. I think that would all tie in as well, then to the management and and which ones actually do need a consultation, and which ones are quite comfortable. They read the information, they're happy to do what the algorithms told them. And, and
1: that, yeah. that, will be, that will be at its own challenges in terms of. Uh, planning of outpatient appointments, won't it? Exactly. Yeah. You may have one cohort of patient in year X, uh, whereas 60% want face to face, whereas it might be 30% the next year and vice versa. So so yeah, so that that would definitely bring its own challenges as well. But you're right, Tom, it it is it is nice to be able to have that flexibility. The only downside is when you've got someone on routine follow up, then you've got uh something changes and then you need to bring them into clinic i suppose it's quite a useful warning shot that something sinister might be happening um but it it does it doesn't allow you to do it necessarily in the way you want to uh whereas you know if they were just coming to routine clinic appointments then you can break that news as part Um, of the routine
0: it's there's all these all these pros and cons in there okay cool um while i've still got you entrapped for another five, 10 minutes um the question that i always like to ask people is where do you think medicine's going hematology especially i mean it's a rapidly changing field um we've got cellular therapy um we've got immunotherapy uh gene therapy all sorts of new modern stuff but i guess for most of most of our patients that's not that applicable you know for the, these, these new innovations it's probably less than one percent of our patients actually eligible um and for me, you know, the next 10, 15, 20 years, I think we'll see um, things like CAR T coming earlier, et cetera. So where where do you guys think where do you guys think we're we're going with, with hematology? What are you most excited about?
1: I think a challenge that we're gonna face is as treatments come in initially third or fourth line and then start drifting forward, um, uptake is gonna increase. And particularly with the high cost therapies, um, which uh and I, I could get on my, my sandbox a bit about um the fixing of prices by pharma. Um it, there's gonna be a point where such a huge amount of funding has to go into a very tiny proportion of yeah. uh, uh, NHS patients. Um I really I I don't know how that's gonna keep going um as costs rise that but that's just one thing but anyway actually in terms of the hematology um i hope that we will have increased or decreasingly toxic therapies so using some really you know fascinating bispecific treatments for example so using antibodies and and treatments targeted just towards the malignant cell to reduce off-site toxicity and you know then that patient you see five years later who's had the if you sludge b had their r chopper then they're back with mds in five years so avoiding that's going to be amazing um and in the non-malignant treatments so um gene therapies for particularly patients with um thalassemia sickle cell um i mean the papers uh, that came out sort of a yearish or so ago maybe a bit more yeah. um, about the change in the, the lifestyles of those patients uh, their lives were completely changed um And so that feels like it's got the potential to be so rewarding. But I guess the question is, will we look after them Um, or will it be somebody else? Will it be geneticists or, um, I don't know who else would want to look after genes, but yeah, geneticists.
0: I think the only thing that's certain is we're not going to be short of work, are we? You know, we're going to solve, we solve certain problems. Um, For example, you know, you're now now curing people with CAR T post-relapse and now. We're dealing with the consequences of that and i think the same thing is going to be of gene therapy you know we will, we will potentially inverted commas cure people of sickle cell disease but then we're still dealing with the consequences of 30, 40 years of sickle um so we're certainly not going to be short a job short of a job but i do wonder i do really wonder about sickle and and foul services in 30 40 years time you, you would imagine that those services won't be needed Mm. yeah good question
1: (laughs) yeah no it's a really good question and i guess i guess they'll still need to exist for those people who don't want to take on gene therapy because it's understandably a pretty scary concept isn't it yeah um so yes uh you're right um but they'll i'm sure they'll look very different um as with all things i guess you know the point at which we start treatment just moves forward Mm -hmm. and doesn't it so you know you used to wait until someone's arthro- rheumatoid arthritis was terrible before you started yeah. the methotrexate, whereas now you try and get in before the arthropathy, arthropathy has developed.
0: So, oh, so you, are you giving everyone with smouldering myeloma lenalidomide then?
1: Yeah, for sure. I'm going straight
0: to six <laughs> cycles of BTD and be all- incurring the wrath of Papaheim and Vinay Prasad on Twitter. <laughs> Tom, what are you excited about?
2: Uh, oh, um, Well, I think Alex is listed all the exciting things i guess i'm maybe not, <laughs> the challenges that come off the back of that yeah are, i feel like similar ones to the ones that acute medicine has gone through in that as we know as these treatments get more and more specialized you're going to need more and more subspecialists within hematology in order to keep abreast of it so uh, you know already cambridge has got now you know this car t consultant not just car t and and you know it gets more divided up um and where does that leave the generalist knowledge and who who looks how do djh patients get looked after, and how do you keep the reward of the job so i mean well, the thing that's already further ahead than this is is pathology i mean we you know increasingly uh the aspirate report or you know, bone marrow reporting is being done centrally by mm. hematopathologists rather than by <laughs> all hematologists looking at their own samples, and that's good because it's a specialist subject and it probably needs to be done but you know, even five years ago, when I applied for haematology, that was part of the story, was be a haematologist, see the patient, take their blood, look at their blood, go back to them the diagnosis. And those steps are now being separated out into individual job roles. Um, and so um, the population does need generous haematologists in, in a DJ hospital in you know, Suffolk, in a, in a rural area with a spread out population, You need somebody who can treat myeloma and and high and low grade lymphoma in one clinic you know patient numbers aren't there and they can't all they can't all travel 60 miles to the second to the tertiary center but how does that person maintain the adequate level of skills and knowledge i mean yes you got mdt but i can just see that being the tension that's just becoming more and more present the more we know about everything um yeah that makes sense a bit rambly
0: Oh, mate! No, makes makes Maybe. absolute sense. Yeah, makes absolute sense. I think it's it's really insightful. And it is it is the challenge, isn't it? I think you're you're hitting the nail on the head. Thinking that that the the workforce planning is is the challenge, and I you know I completely agree. Firstly, how do you get enough of the right people? But how do you retain people and give them job satisfaction? Is the,
2: ensuring that ensuring that these jobs don't lose. You know, it's okay, here's something for the website for this podcast for unfounded opinions that might need to be cut. Love it. How these jobs don't lose status? Uh, mm-hmm. and, and could that could that happen to to haematology and it, will you will you need some kind of acute haematologist who will become a filtering service to other parts of the hospital and is, mm. is that a rewarding job to do um well
0: there's already sort of liaison haematology emerging isn't it um i guess you know when a special, you know when a specialty has many subspecialties when the thing that's called general isn't general it's like general surgery it's not general is it and same with general hematology general hematology is 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 well i don't quite know but it seems to be people that don't fit into cancer um <laughs> yeah. coag or or uh transfusion so yeah it's uh, it, it, you, i think you, i think you're spot on i think you're spot on fab um does anyone want to say anything else so <laughs> like any other business from uh yeah. from fighting talk on five live <laughs>
1: Well, one thing I, I forgot to say was um, I did use TeamBase for my revision, um, and it is absolutely fantastic. So thank you, Tom. That definitely um, guided me to to my success. So uh, yeah, I can't call. thank you enough for the hours that you put in on that.
2: Thank you. That's one thing about the internet. It's very hard to you don't get necessarily get the feedback to really you know when people are using it. The moment for me was when Hemebase started turning up in a Google search instead of ten results for HomeBase. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: No, that's good is
2: yeah, that where you got then is that where you
0: got the idea of the name is that is that what it's yeah, meant to be vaguely i think it ran yeah. through
2: my head at the time yeah okay i know um but yeah i've had friends visiting who've brought up buku medicine independently who are in acute medicine and gp specialties. Oh, yes. so okay. I, again i don't know i mean you've got an app you can count users maybe but they're active users i guess is the thing which maybe is harder for you to know but yeah, yeah people bring it up and they use it and it's um
1: yeah, no, and that, yeah, and that—that's the lovely thing. I think sometimes when you're trying to uh, keep it going, thinking of ways to make it sustainable and stuff, it can get a bit frustrating. But then, um, if you get feedback like that, then that makes all the difference. So.
0: Thank you so much to you both. Um, that was an awesome conversation. I've learned loads. Um, I will listen to it again uh, many times, I think, to uh, uh, hear all those lovely nuggets of information. So <laughs> thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for spending your Friday night on Zoom uh, with me, with my child screaming in the background, which mercifully, I don't think you could hear. Uh, we'll uh, we'll see when I listen back to this, but um, wish you all the best for your consultant jobs and uh, take care. Yeah, right. thanks, Rich. Well, thanks for listening wherever you are. You've just heard a really wide-ranging interview with Tom Bull and Alex Language, who run HemeBase and Buki Medicine, respectively. They're two brilliant people and practically celebrities of online haematology education, and they're a massive inspiration. I also mentioned my website, pathquestionbank.com, which is the largest online repository of multiple-choice questions and answers for FRC Path Part 1 in haematology. Well, I really hope that conversation made you think. We're in for a really exciting few decades, As we deal with the unforeseen challenges of being even more successful at medicine, clearly as people are better treated, um, they will develop new problems, they will live longer, and we will create new problems for ourselves, which in in many ways is, is a good place to be. I've put the links to Buku Medicine, Heembase, Path Question Bank and NHS Entrepreneurs in the show notes. Stay tuned for more really exciting podcasts. I've got plenty of amazing guests planned in the next few months. I'm really looking forward to bringing those to you. So until we meet again, stay curious, stay interested and take care. Don't Just Read the Guidelines is for education and entertainment only and should not be treated as medical advice. I certainly cannot guarantee the factual accuracy of the content, but if you do notice any errors, feel free to send me some constructive criticism on Twitter. Don't Just Read the Guidelines is recorded and produced by Richard Booker and music is by Scott Holmes.